This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. So uh, some of the headlines, we've seen record COVID-19 deaths in Eastern Europe. We see new curbs coming into place over Europe. Charlie mentioned earlier about J.P. Morgan Chase asking uh, most of its employees in England to work from home. So we continue to see this um, soar, and cases really soaring in key battleground states, too, um, as we all head to the polls for today's presidential election. Let's get back to someone uh, who is seeing uh, all of this happen firsthand. Dr. Peter Alperin is VP at Doximity. It's a professional medical network for physicians. He joins us on the phone in San Francisco, uh, where he practices. Um, Nice to have you back with us, Dr. Alperin. Uh, How are you? What are you seeing when it comes to the virus right now? Oh, well, thanks for uh, having me back. Uh, In San Francisco, actually, we have been pretty fortunate in the sense that um, we've had a a, kept our baseline levels of coronavirus pretty low. And um, we've been had really good community support in terms of people doing the things that matter, socially distancing and wearing masks. Um, That's been we've seen, you know, outbreaks, of course, uh, and we've been relatively slow to open. So in San Francisco, things are looking pretty good uh, here on Election Day. But when you look around the country, how do you see it and what are your anticipation or what do you expect kind of how this plays out for the U.S., especially watching? I don't know if it's a fair assumption that in terms of what's going on in Europe, should we assume that's going to happen here in the U.S.? Yeah, so um, it is a little scary when you look around the country where uh, you're definitely seeing um, virus caseloads surge. You're seeing, um, you know, increased case testing rates as well as increased numbers of hospitalizations. Um, and I think what you're seeing in Europe is in some ways what's playing out in uh, many parts of the country here uh, with these increased caseloads, particularly in the middle part of the country uh, and other places where, uh, you know, people have gathered. Um, it is a... Um, it's really just the, the same things that help us prevent, co- um, you know, the spread of COVID-19 that we've talked about a, a million times. It's, this is very much a marathon and not a sprint. So it's very, very difficult. I know people are tired, but we really have to persevere. Well, what are you guys finding and the folks that, you know, within your metric, uh, metric network, excuse me, within your network at Doximity, you know, what are doctors hearing from patients? Because you guys are doing, as we know, a lot of telemedicine. We've talked with this, you know, about this with you before. You know, what are they hearing from patients? Are they kind of getting back to taking care of, you know, normal medical procedures um, or are they still kind of hesitant? Yeah. So um, on the network, we're seeing a tremendous amount of discussion um, Mm. related to uh, COVID-19 and the various topics that you brought up. Uh, Specifically, um, physicians are discussing that there's that, um, you know, patients are, um, you know, having uh, just, you know, it's it's a tough time out there and and trying to, um, you know, take care of themselves and their family members. But uh, in particular, uh, we are seeing um, a persistence of telehealth. So telehealth is really um, has um, is staying the course. It's obviously less than it was um, in the the springtime when there was a huge surge, but we're still seeing um, around particularly 20 to 25 percent of, of health care being delivered through telehealth. Although um, many uh, physicians have, of course, reopened their offices and there are procedures that are being done. Um, and they're, But they're being very careful as they bring patients into their office. That's another topic of discussion on the Doximity Network. 
uh, is all the protocols and things that have happened to help um, patients have a safe encounter with their physicians when they do to, when they do need to come into their offices. So distancing, um, washing their hands, and spacing out those appointments just a little bit more. What do you think we need to think about too in terms of? I actually went to the poll this morning really early, first thing in the morning. Mostly as a journalist, I kind of wanted to see what it the turnout and what it was like. Um, did drop my ballot, but. Um, I think, you know, I did think about, I don't really want to be around a lot of people, <laughs> you know, and I do think about, is it just the basic safety, you know, the wash your hands, keep your social distancing. And I think everybody understands, certainly in this New York metro area, the protocols. Um, but I do think there are people who are concerned still and understandably so. Yeah, understandably so. Um, but, uh, you know, the the need to vote is so important and so critical. So if you are going to go to the polls today um, and you haven't gone already, um, if you can go in the midday when polls tend to be a slightly uh, have fewer people, that's a great thing to do because it really is exactly as you sort of imply, Carol. It's really about keeping your distance and maintaining that. Uh, so, you know, staying six feet away from people, bringing your own pen is always, of course, a good idea. Reviewing your ballot, knowing, knowing who you and the, who you want to vote for, is um, yes or no is super important as well so that you spend less time inside of the the actual polling. Um, If you can, you can perhaps wait in your car uh, if that works for you so that you can stay a little more isolated and, of course, wear a mask. So just some of those common sense things I think are tremendously important. Hey, one last question before we go, um, Dr. Alperin. You know, I'm hearing from people, I'm seeing it, that medical plans where telemedicine was kind of adopted just kind of loosely to get us through COVID. Now systems are saying or employers are saying, listen, this is going to be part of your medical plan going forward. We've turned the corner on this, you think? I do. You know, that's something that we've seen a tremendous amount of discussion on the Doximity Network uh, related to telemedicine. I think we are going to turn the corner. Patients really like the convenience that telehealth provides, particularly patients with chronic conditions so that they can, uh, you know, be seen a little bit more frequently by their providers and in a safer environment. And I think physicians have um, have realized that this is something that they need to offer. And I think figuring out how to do that is a bit of an ongoing process in terms of how to incorporate it into their practice. But I think it's here to stay. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Stay safe. Really appreciate your time. Dr. Peter Alperin, he's vice president at Doximity, also a physician in private practice in San Francisco, and of course, joining us on the phone from San Francisco on this Election Day Tuesday. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Our most read story, number one on the Bloomberg Terminal about China suspending the Shanghai and Hong Kong debut of Ant Group's $35 billion offering. It was supposed to be the world's biggest IPO. It was supposed to happen Thursday, but uh, it's not. You knew about it thanks to our Bloomberg New Economy editorial director, Andy Brown. He has written and talked about how Ant's biggest obstacles may be the Chinese government. Andy is with us again on the phone in New York City. Andy, I'm so glad you're here. You know, this headline hit, and I think for a lot of people, it was a bit shocking, but you did write about this and kind of gave us all a heads up in a column you wrote last month. Why is it, though, that China is doing this? You know, Jack Ma has always had an uneasy, ambiguous relationship with Chinese authorities. He once was, fa- he was famously quoted as saying, love the government, but don't marry them. In other words, keep your distance. And regulators have never quite known what to make of Jack Ma. Um, on the one hand, 
they look at him as a big opportunity. He's clearly a disruptor. He's bringing a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises into the formal economy, uh, putting capital their way. On the other hand, there's always been this sense among regulators that he's an accident waiting to happen. Um, they haven't been able to decide, and yesterday, or today rather, they did. Uh, they've decided that he's too much of a risk, and they're reining him in. Well, and why wait, though, kind of to the 11th hour, you know, Andy? This is obviously a company that they've been looking at for some time. Why is it, you know, is it just because the IPO finally said to them, wait, we've got to, we've got to really now look at this more closely and maybe do something about it? Well, he made, he made a, terrible, uh, a, a terrible political mistake. It was at a, at, a, at a conference recently in Shanghai. He lit into Chinese and international financial regulators, basically called them all a bunch of fusty old folk, holding back innovation, stunting the dreams of young people. Um, you know, not, un, not, under, not understand. He, he, he said that the Basel Accord was an old, pe- was an old people's club. He said banks in China um, were basically had a, had a pawn shop mentality. And mm. he said all this at a conference where the headliner, the keynote speaker, was Wang Qishan. He's one of the most powerful men in China. Formerly, he was the anti-corruption czar, but is also one of the godfathers of the Chinese banking system. And Wang Qishan's line at that conference was completely opposite. His line was, we have to be cautious, safety first. And Jack Ma comes in and says, we've got to rip it all up and start again. Wang Qishan, obviously, um, his arguments have won the day. Yeah, I, can, I anticipate that, um, you know, uh, that Jack Ma's you know, PR team kind of sitting at the side being like, what are you saying? What are you saying? Um, what's interesting is, though, you know, Andy, I think about China wanting to open up and be much more involved in and be really dominant, whether it's technology, finance, more sophisticated parts of the global economy. And I feel like Ant is one way for them to do this, but it's interesting then to see them kind of rein it in. So is this much more a personal thing uh, when it comes down to it? Or are they really concerned about kind of the, the structure and the sprawl, if you will, of Ant? Well, this is a this is a broader political issue. You know, I mean, China right now is throwing open its markets to foreign investors. It right. wants more money in, in, in the markets. And, and that message has is, got a, a very, is, 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 is being welcomed by, by U.S. investors. People like Ray Dalio are saying, you know, we really need to reweight China in our investment portfolios. It's now 3%, should be 15%. If it goes to 15%, it would imply this massive gusher of money. But what this episode dramatically highlights is that when you get involved in Chinese markets, you're also getting entangled in Chinese politics. Right now, it's impossible to say what Jack Ma's political risk profile is. Nobody knows, least of all Jack Ma himself. That's kind of important, given that Jack Ma is the richest guy in China, and this is potentially, if it ever comes, if, it ever, if he ever pulls it off, the biggest IPO in history. Um, Andy, got about 20 seconds. Should we say this is far from over and we could still ultimately see that IPO? Just quickly. Yeah, we could. I mean, it, it, it still could go out, but there's going to be, um, it's going to be a, a, a very bumpy ride, which essentially is what foreign investors need to expect when they get involved in the Chinese financial system. Thank you so much, Andy. We knew when this story hit, we had to talk with you um, because you gave us that heads up. You've been on it. Andy Brown, thank you so much. He's editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, he's a known Republican economist, uh, worked under President George W. Bush, also worked on the campaigns of Mitt Romney, also Jeb Bush. And yet he says President Trump, well, he doesn't exactly have an economic plan. Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor, Peter Coy, watching all things election and the economy, joining us on the phone in New Jersey. Also with us, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber from Brooklyn. Uh, A timely story, no doubt about it here, Joel. Yeah, well, Peter is uh, full of timely stories, and and we're (laughs) going to see more to come, and I I hope talk to him about more than just uh, this one that he uh, wrote for today, but uh, Peter, like, let's start there. You got a little uh, time here with uh, uh, Hubbard, and I'm curious what what he had to say. Well, I've talked to Glenn over the years, uh, before and after uh, he was uh, with the George W. Bush administration. And he is a sort of a conventional uh, sort of small deficit, small government Republican. And for Trump is not to his liking, so we know that. So he's said negative things before. Um, but I, I called him just to try to get an assessment of sort of what the Republican establishment thinks of Trump, and that's what he came up with. Uh, he, he's, uh, he has some nice things to say about Trump. He agrees with him on taxes and deregulation for the most part. Um, he, uh, he doesn't agree with him on trade. He feels like Trump uh, provoked a needless uh, conflict with allies over, for example, steel and aluminum tariffs, and didn't go about dealing with China the right way, even though he was right to take on China. But as for the next term, he said that Trump has been conspicuously vague on what he hopes to achieve in his second term. And that's why he said, it's not like I dislike his plan, it just doesn't have one. Right, right. Well, <laughs> but he's also not very complimentary about Joe Biden either when it comes to an economic right. plan, right? Right. So I got a few uh, Bloomberg uh, terminal subscribers who wrote to me saying, how come you singled out his criticism of Trump in the headline and not Biden? I said, well, I wrote back. I said, look, when a Republican criticizes a Democrat, it's not news. <laughs> when a Republican, a Republican that's news. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so Peter, let's true, talk he about... Doesn't think Biden, he doesn't think Biden has a very detailed plan either. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you could come back, either one of the candidates could come back and say, look, uh, you know, I'm not governing yet. I'm campaigning. It's a different kind of thing. You don't necessarily want to have a detailed blueprint for what you're going to do in office when you're just trying to win votes. Yeah. So, so P- Peter, I know you've been uh, squirreling away on, on many things, some of which that, um, you know, that I've asked you to do and others that yeah. <laughs> you've been great at nominating. But I, you know, I want to just kind of pick your, pick your brain going into election night. And wh- I'm wondering sort of like, you know, you as an economist and, a, you know, like long time part of the big voice of Bloomberg Business Week, what are the things that you're, you're thinking about? First of all, I always, uh, Take care to say I'm not an economist. I'm a journalist who writes about economics. So there you go. Sorry, uh, thanks for not, that. Not not claiming, yeah. But I think uh, you know this. As I wrote in one of my pieces, I forgot which one because there's so many floating around. Oh, just for the reader, by the way, just for the listeners, by the way, you probably need to know that we have multiple plans. We have stories for every possible contingency pre-written. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will say a crazy exercise. <laughs> it's been a fun week yeah. at Business Week, right? 
I'm going to actually just add a caveat there, which is like every every scenario we think we know about. (laughs) Right, (laughs) exactly. A meteor could still strike. Um, But but it's kind of weird, like placing your – it's like wearing virtual reality goggles where to write an article about a scenario means you have to thrust yourself into that world. So I've been in the Trump world – Trump wins world and the Biden wins world. I can tell you all about them in technicolor. Well, but it's interesting. Well, but it, let, go ahead. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, you know, I, I, I want to save all of that for, for <laughs> tomorrow, maybe, yeah. actually. But but as you've kind of done that, like, what are the things that have stood out to you, especially in, in regards to, like, what business looks like under either of these candidates for the next four years? So Bloomberg Economics did a fairly narrow look at just asking one key question, but a very important one, you know, is, is like, stimulus. So uh, we have had a, several months now of uh, a gap in coronavirus relief and starting to weigh in the economy. So um, what's, what's going to happen? And Bloomberg Economics believes that the strongest stimulus package would come with a Biden win and a Democrats taking the Senate, um, perhaps $2 trillion relief package. Um, the, the worst would be if there is no decision for weeks and weeks, uh, heaps of animosity, and however it turns out, um, nobody's going to want to work with each other and have a small relief package. The one where Trump wins uh, and, say, Democrats... Uh, or Republicans keep the Senate, you know, you still get a pretty good result because the assumption there is that the uh, Republicans already starting to look ahead to the midterms in 2022 will want to, um, you know, provide a little more stimulus than they've been willing to this fall. Well, and we know that stimulus is so key in terms of keeping the economy going. Yes. And obviously, the financial markets, all it's, it's all connected. I kind of kicked off the show saying everything's connected, whether it's the virus, mm-hmm. the election, yeah. stimulus. Hey, before you go, um, Joel is quite the taskmaster because you've been doing a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a great story and because we talk so much about polls and polling in the oh. election. And you, you, know, you ask the question, what is the margin of error anyway? Uh, if anybody didn't take like statistics. <laughs> so... I don't know how many people are listening remember Emily Latella from the old Saturday Night Live. Yes. What's all this fuss about endangered feces? <laughs> so, Miss Gordon, sorry. I'm saying, what? what's <laughs> all this fuss about the margarine era? No, it's the marginal <laughs> margin of error. No, it's, 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 you got to read it. It's like impossible to explain briefly, but I just try to explain to people when you hear this term, it's uh, a little more subtle than you might guess. Uh, for example, the reported margin of error for, for a survey re- refers only to the headline numbers and not to the subcomponents. And also, it doesn't refer to the differences between the candidates. For example, if you hear there's a 3% margin of error on a survey, that doesn't mean there's a 3% margin of error on the difference between Trump and Biden. The, the difference would have a, roughly a 6% margin of error. Just keep that in mind because yeah. people put a little too much faith sometimes in the results they hear from polls. I think we left Joel. I think he went to get a drink or something. No, <laughs> I, I'm, all of a sudden it felt I like think statistics that is a perfectly, class. 
<laughs> it was a perfectly good sort of cliffhanger, unfortunately, to like leave us on heading into tonight where it's like, hey, there's been polls and there's also this thing yeah. called margin of error and no one knows anything. Like we don't have enough uncertainty out there. All right, guys, yeah. thank you so much. Already my favorite time of the day here. This was so good. Uh, Joel Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, you got to be sure to check out the magazine because they are really working hard on all the different scenarios and how this all works out. Uh, on the remote uh, access from Brooklyn, Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business week on the phone from New Jersey. Check him out too at Peter Coy on Twitter. Always great. And you learn something. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Well, COVID-19 laid bare many of the inequities in our world, whether it was about who got sick, access to health care, or our ability to really support ourselves and take care of our families. It also brought out further a digital divide. But as our Bloomberg Associates team researched for its second Digital City Tools report, cities continue to focus on the technologies that are enabling city services to be delivered more effectively with the goal of providing better services. And really, it's about a higher quality of life for its residents. Bloomberg Associates is the philanthropic philanthropic consulting arm of Bloomberg Philanthropies. Michael R. Bloomberg, of course, the founder, majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Let's get more, though, on this report, let's bring in Milan Deputy Mayor Roberta Coco. She's on the phone in Milan, Italy, and also with us is Bloomberg Associates Principal Catherine Oliver on the phone in New York City. So great to have both of you with us. And I want to dig into the report in just a moment, um, but I do have to ask you, Mayor Coco, how are you doing? Um, we know Italy getting ready for um, more stimulus, uh, stricter measures because of the virus. How are you doing? How is your city doing? Okay, first of all, thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'm really happy to to share my experience with you tonight. And, uh, uh, you know, Milan was the first uh, large city in Europe uh, struck by uh, the the pandemic, and uh, we had uh, such a, a rest during the summer, but now, unfortunately, we are again, uh, under uh, a a new wave of uh, uh, pandemic. So uh, tonight, our prime minister, uh, Mr. Conte, is announcing uh, uh, a new uh, means for trying to face uh, this pandemic. So we are all waiting what will happen, but we know that uh, we will have to be ready for uh, a new uh, kind of lockdown. We really hope not uh, as terrible as the previous one, but uh, we understand that that we have to do something uh, to control the pandemic. Right, right. No, and we certainly hope that uh, that it uh, isn't as tough as it was certainly last time. Catherine, I want to bring you in. You and I have talked a few times since spring about how kind of our worlds have been turned upside down on all levels because of COVID-19. You guys were working on this report. We're conducting research as COVID happened. Tell us kind of what your team set out to do and how the virus impacted what you were looking at and what you were hearing from the cities that you engaged with. So the study really showcases what 30 leading uh, digital cities are doing to address city needs. And when we did the report two years ago, it was really the goal was to facilitate peer-to-peer learning and to really take a look and to showcase um, interesting ways that city governments around the world are using technology to engage with their residents and their visitors. But as you said, when we were doing this report, 
um, COVID-19 hit and it altered every aspect of urban life. And, you know, more and more uh, mayors and leaders uh, quickly realized that technology was critical for every form of communication, distributing their messaging, telling stories, uh, tracking data. Um, So it became essential. Um, But the need for data collection and data sharing um, is important, but leadership is important. And, you know, um, it it would vary widely from city to city, but we really, it really crystallized the importance that you need a strong leader. You need um, a digital approach and an appreciation of the use of technology. Um, But, you know, it was really exemplified in what Milan Mayor Beppe Sala could do with his amazing team. You know, they were hit with COVID early on and how they were able to embrace the technology and use it effectively to really get information out, critical information out at a time that um, was critical to their constituents and businesses. Well, and that's a really, you know, important point that you can have technology, but unless you have the right leadership and the strong leadership to really use it effectively, it's just technology. Deputy Mayor Coco, I mean, how did, you know, expand upon what what Catherine just talked about, about technology becoming critical and how you use it during the shutdown? And I'm curious, you know, if you have any specific examples. Yeah. So uh, I I have to to tell something at, at the beginning because uh, we were working uh, on a huge uh, digital transformation plan since uh, the very beginning of the mandate uh, of the mayor, Giuseppe Sala. So we began to build uh, our um, digital strategy in 2016. And so we have been working on uh, a complete new strategy to uh, move uh, most of our services uh, uh, on uh, uh, digital uh, assets and uh, trying to um, move uh, uh, the opportunity for citizens uh, to uh, achieve uh, uh, services through their mobile phones. So this was our, our strategy. When the pandemic struck, in a sense, I can say that uh, we had uh, uh, built something. And so uh, I, I can't say that we were ready because uh, nobody was. Uh, and so this pandemic was so terrible that uh, at, at the very beginning we were shocked. But we had uh, uh, the, the, the digital uh, infrastructure and the digital services that, that we built uh, uh, and so we could use them as our levers uh, for facing uh, the situation. And, uh, uh, for example, we boosted, uh, boosted all the services uh, to mobile phones mm-hmm. because people were locked down. They were in their houses. And so we couldn't ask them to go out, to go to the registry offices for any need that they might have. Right. And so we had to offer our services in their houses. And the same, for uh, example, for the people um, uh, who were in real need. So we had to reach them, right. mobile phones, uh, reassuring them 
offering them information. Deputy Mayor uh, Coco, let me get back to you because I knew you were finishing and you were talking about the use of um, mobile phones, mobility um, in terms of dealing with uh, the COVID uh, situation in your city. I I did want to let you finish your thought. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, explaining that we had to leverage all the digital assets that we prepared in advance because uh, uh, facing the pandemic, we had to move all our services on the mobile phones because citizens in their houses, they had their own mobile phones in their pockets. They couldn't go out because they were locked down. And so we uh, boosted uh, the uh, apps to help citizens during the lockdown. For example, apps that uh, reported uh, nearby shops uh, with home delivery mm-hmm. or how to connect uh, with uh, our municipality or even uh, helping, uh, um, trying to help uh, uh, citizens to use uh, technology to be connected to their uh, families and their relatives. And we knew that technology was a kind of lifeline for people uh, on that terrible situation uh, for school, for work, for personal relationship, and also for uh, being connected to the municipality. Catherine, I want to bring you back in. In putting back this or putting together this report, you worked with several cities around the globe. And I do wonder if there were often common challenges um, and a sharing of knowledge and and, and solutions uh, that came about in terms of uh, tackling those problems. Sure. We surveyed 30 leading digital cities, um, global cities around the world, representing every continent. And um, the, the report really mapped the deployment of 41 technologies. Um, across five areas in government, connectivity, data, city operations, transport and mobility, and, of course, safety and security. And we looked at how these technologies are applied to specific city challenges and priorities. And I think it's important that there's there's no such thing as a quick fix. All of these cities, like all of us, are grappling with new technology. Technology is changing quickly. And these cities have to be nimble and creative and have the expertise to embrace them and deploy them. Um, But developing a digital culture and then embedding these digital tools and processes in city operations takes time and planning and investment and, as Roberto will tell you, patience. But I have to give credit to Roberta and what she's doing in Milan is that it's important to have and to create a pipeline of expertise and talent. And Roberta has uh, launched a number of STEM programs really designed to educate a younger generation more about opportunities in science and technology and teaching them about how this could be applied to potentially careers within city government. And I think that this is really very important. And Roberta has really dedicated herself to this, to to be a role model herself. She's had a very successful career at Microsoft and now has gotten back into public service to really make a difference in Milan. But I think that she's helping local city services, but also thinking creatively about how to create that pipeline of talent and create the next generation of entrepreneurs. Well, 
Deputy Mayor Coco, talk to us about talent, because you could have initiatives, plans, but it's Catherine brings up such a good point that if you don't have basically the infrastructure in place, which includes having the right people to be able to implement what you want to put into place when it comes to technological initiatives, talk to us about what was a priority for you and what, what needed to be done. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Catherine, for your words. Uh, you know, it it uh, it has still better in public administration. We do not have enough uh, resources and enough uh, uh, digital skills for uh, driving uh, uh, the digital transformation plan. And this is this this is true. And so we have to uh, react uh, also because, uh, especially in Italy. Uh, we uh, are suffering uh, from a very large uh, uh, digital gap, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which is all around, uh, you know, the, the public administration, private sector, everything. But we are, um, you know, moving forward and we are changing this situation. And you, uh, from, from a public administration point of view, you can't drive... Uh, a deep uh, um, digital transformation plan if you do not have uh, enough resources to manage it, right. to lead it. And so we, um, we built uh, quite a huge program of uh, hiring uh, um, new experts in technology and also uh, attracting uh, uh, youth. Um, in, in different ways, right. uh, as intern or, you know, in the first years of the university and so on. At the so, same time... Deputy uh, Mayor, uh, my, my apologies. I have to, to break in because we're running out of time, but I do hope we can reach out to you again. It would be really interesting to hear a little bit more about the initiatives um, that you are putting in place uh, to get this all done. Milan Deputy Mayor Roberta Coco on the phone in Milan, and our thanks also to Bloomberg Associates Principal Catherine Oliver uh, joining us to talk about the Digital City Tools Report. Bloomberg Associates, of course, uh, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Kathy Boyle. She's president and founder at Chapin Hill Advisors. She's with us on the phone from Pound Ridge, New York. Kathy, good to have you here with us. Uh, how are you? I'm great, Carol. How about yourself? Doing okay. Uh, kind of watching those rising virus numbers and watching the election. And uh, there's a lot on everybody's mind. Uh, I do wonder, you know, when you talk with some of your clients and investors, um, how do they take it all in? And, and how has it, if at all, been kind of impacting uh, their investment strategies? So great question. It really varies very much. I find people apathetic, you know, because the mm. markets continue to go up. 
I see a lot of people with 100% equity, new people that come to me and have questions and, you know, miss my chance to sell Netflix at five <laughs> something because I wrote calls and now it's 340. So I'm waiting for it to go back up, you know, and they all have their own scenarios. You know, a lot of smart people in the market and they all have these scenarios for where they think it's going. And then other people are apathetic and they just like, all right, whatever. You just tell me what to do and I'm there. So it ranges quite a bit. Well, Oh, that's kind of yeah. I guess that's that's what makes a market, right? Um, which is kind of interesting. Well, let's let's talk about some of the major things that are out there. First of all, the election. I don't know. How do you see it? Our Vince Signorella, he's so smart, and you know, kicked off our show just talking about, you know, the expectation is, and maybe why we're seeing a rally despite the rising virus numbers is that there is the expectation that we're going to get more stimulus. The question is just kind of exactly when and how big it will be. Correct. And so the problem becomes that, you know, right now Biden's leading by 10 points, which is a large margin. But in 2016, they had Hillary leading as well. So those polls are not always reliable. Um, And most people are expecting a blue wave to come in, right? So it's blue wave versus red wave. And so if the blue wave gets in, they are expecting stimulus. But the problem is the amount of stimulus that they're willing to do if Pelosi and Biden are in control of it is not going to be offset enough by the massive tax increases that Biden's expected to do. And so you're going to see a migration of people leaving areas like New York City, where the tax rate is supposed to go up to 62 percent. You know, so I think that they have some real potential negative effects. There's certainly a dislocation society. Look how much anger there is. I mean, we see mother. One story I saw, the, her son stopped talking to her because she's voting for Trump. So we're seeing, you know, huge amount of anger. The other scenario is if Trump gets in, it's considered pro-business. Um, so one scenario I've seen is, you know, initial reaction to Biden getting in up and then down to 2,500 is what J.P. Morgan actually came up with out with recently. And the other scenario is Trump wins, may be some knee-jerk reaction on the downside to start with, but then 3,900 in the S&P. I mean, bottom line, isn't there at some level – you know, Kathy, and I do understand Republicans versus Democrats, certain policies seem to be, you know, more common, you know, for certain parties versus or for one party over another. But I do think if we are inheriting whoever the president is, they're going to deal with an economy that's going to need help. And that's going to require whether you're a Democrat or Republican policies to assist it. Correct. You're absolutely right. I mean, the amount of people that are being affected by COVID, one of my girlfriends just put a plea out yesterday because, as you know, I rescue animals. And so Mm -hmm. I have a very big rescue community. She has a kennel, a boarding kennel that normally supports rescue. And so she put out a plea to help pay her property taxes Wow! because nobody's using kennels because they're not traveling. You know, Royal Caribbean just announced they're not doing any cruises through the end of this year. You cannot support a restaurant at 25 percent capacity. So how much longer can some of these businesses go? How many businesses are going to shut down? You know, that's part of what people are afraid of is the Dems are in favor of more of a lockdown. Look at the increasing COVID rates. But they're also but they're also favoring a bigger stimulus and, and, and package to help out the economy. Correct. But how long does a PPP loan go? How mm-hmm. long can that help? 
loans do not stimulate demand. We've right. got to be able to stimulate the economy. Inflation is rising. The, according to the Fed, we have no inflation. But if you go to the grocery store, you know there's inflation. Right. So a lot of people, the moratoriums on evictions are going until 2021. Commercial realtors are under pressure. Individual realtors, you know, people that own multiple family buildings are under a lot of pressure. So the underlying effect to this economy is really much deeper than I think certainly the market is is understanding and recognizing so So that becomes the real concern well you've often so how low do you think the market or what level do you think the market should really be at kathy right now so it shouldn't be up here that's for sure whether it should come down to three thousand twenty five hundred two thousand on the s&p i think we had a ten percent correction over the last two months Mm -hmm. and nobody panics right and now we see this huge you know got oversold last week so we have a thousand point rally in two days what you have to understand about the market is the market likes certainty. And I don't think we're going to get that tonight. I don't think So then why is the market winner. rallying, Kathy, today? <laughs> if you don't, there, I mean, we've, well, we've had... Because Biden is leading. Okay. And so the expect is, yes, we're going to get the stimulus and it's going to be the panacea. And, you know, and also remember, Biden is very pro-trade and... So they think, you know, relations with different countries will open up, trade will open up. So that's the expectation, I believe, in, in the market, along with the fact that just, you know, gets oversold and, and you get bounces and the techs are leading today. Yeah, exactly. We've seen certainly another rotation again, at least on a daily basis uh, when it comes to the markets. Um, what do you think about technology at this point, Kathy? So... The market's very concentrated. You have to remember, though, the FANG stocks are FANG stocks. You know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Mm -hmm. uh, replaced by Microsoft, and then Google, which is Alphabet. That controls the bulk of the market. It's very similar to shades of 2000 when just a small number of stocks were accountable for 45% of the return in the NASDAQ. So, you know, a lot of people have concentrated portfolios, even within ETFs and mutual funds. They don't realize that there's an overlap in holdings. So a lot of people are concentrating on large cap growth. Tech is certainly winning, certainly like you look at Amazon with online delivery. Look at the amount of online shopping. Retailers are getting hurt, but, you know, they're cremating the uh, marketplace on that side. And certainly Netflix. How many people are now watching? I finally gave up and subscribed to Netflix. So, you know, there's really a lot of of reason behind it, but it's not the panacea, and they're trading at astronomical I know. valuations in many cases. They've definitely, definitely run up. All right, Kathy, good to hear your voice. Kathy Boyle, president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors, uh, joining us on the phone from Pound Ridge, New York. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com, and be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.